Amen. So good to worship with you today. If you haven't been with us, we have been walking through the book of Acts one chapter week by week. This week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open those. Turn right there to Acts 16 or bring it up on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the Welcome Center. You can just take home if you need a Bible. Um, While you're turning there, tell me if you've seen this movie before. I'm going to say the plot line. You start thinking of what movie I'm talking about. There's a ragtag group of individuals who come together in unity to conquer a far superior adversary who in all likelihood should destroy the group of said ragtag individuals. But the group of underdogs come together and have more heart and teamwork to accomplish their mission. And so at the end of the movie, we see it is filled with redemption and life lessons that we can all learn from from the rest of our lives. You got the movie in your head? If you were thinking I was talking about Lord of the Rings, you are wrong, okay? I was thinking about Little Giants. Have you seen this before? Some of you have. And I like it. Some of you are going to go and watch it this week. I know you will. If you haven't seen Little Giants, it's a classic, okay? It's a classic where a youth football team, the Cowboys, are made up of all the best players, and they dominate all the other teams. By the way, this is spoilers 100%, okay? And so they dominate all the other teams. And uh, the Little Giants, however, are made up of a bunch of scrappy individuals, some who are pretty good, but most who are not. And so to highlight a few of the most prominent players that we see in the movie, Icebox is the best player. The Cowboys don't want her because she's a girl, all right? Uh, Hot Hands is the wide receiver, but he can't catch, so he has to, like, dip his hands in, like, sticky stuff to catch the ball. It's hilarious. Radtad is the running back, but he's terrified of getting tackled. That brings back too many memories of my football days. And Rudy is a lineman that loves to eat Cheetos more than blocking, all right? And so this is the team, okay? This is the little giants. Why do people awe? They're just kids. Uh, Anyways, all right. They pull it together, and with heart and valor, they accomplish one of the greatest upsets in sports movie history. They defeat the Cowboys. They come together. They defeat this team as a bunch of people who don't deserve it and who should not have victory. And yet, at the end of the movie, they stand victorious. You see, I bring this movie up, and the many like it. I I went through that plot line because that's almost every sports movie in history, isn't it? Uh, I bring up that plot line because it points out that all of us yearn for redemption, don't we? All of us yearn for some type of redemption. It's amazing to see people who don't deserve to win come out as the victors. It's amazing to see people who should not be standing at the end as the winners, but yet are, because we all want this idea of the same thing for us as well in life. We all yearn for redemption in our lives. We yearn to see this story play out time and time again because it's our story. None of us deserve victory over sin and death, and yet through Christ, that's possible, isn't it? Through Christ, it is possible to receive victory over sin and death, to receive redemption just like they had in their movie, but ours 
hinges on eternity. In Acts chapter 16, we're going to come across a group of people who don't deserve redemption. And yet, they find themselves redeemed and transformed by the grace of God for a very specific reason and for a very specific context. We're going to see this story of redemption play out, and God used a group of individuals that no one ever would have picked, and yet God chose to use them for his glory and for the sake of their context. And so we're going to jump in to Acts 16, starting in verse 11 and 12. But before we read it, I just want to give you a little context of where, what happens in verses 1 through 10. So if homework, go home and read verses 1 through 10 today, okay? There's a lot that happens, but what happens in those verses? Paul and Barnabas, at the end of chapter 15, kind of split ways. They have a disagreement about John Mark. Barnabas, being the encourager, wants to give uh, John Mark another chance. Paul, being the we're going forward, does not. So they get mad at each other. They have a disagreement. It's sharp, and they go their own ways. And so Paul and Silas now, so it's always been Paul and Barnabas up until this time. Paul and Silas now are going off, and they make their way to Derby and Lystra, where they meet a young man named Timothy. You might know this Timothy. There's two letters written to him in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy. And so they meet Timothy, and he's well spoken of. So they, they're like, hey, why don't you come with us on our journey? And so they plan to go to certain places like Asia, but the Lord prevents them and gives them other plans. And right before verse 11, we're, we're, we're told that Paul has a vision. It's called the Macedonian vision. He has this vision that he should go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 11. And so they had their plans, but God gave them their actual plans of where they're going to go. All right? And so Acts 16, 11, and 12. So because of this vision, we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day, we landed in, in Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony and we stayed there several days. They stayed there several days. A few things we just need to point out here first. First, the fact that they sailed straight tells us that the winds were at their backs. Some of you might be sailboaters, if that's what you call yourselves. But if you're sailboaters, it's a good thing to have to go sail at your backs, isn't it? I would assume so, because then you can go exactly where you want to go to. If, this, if the wind is not at your back, Then you have to figure it out more. You have to zig and zag and stuff like that, I would assume. I've been sailing once in my life, okay? It's, I don't know. And so the the wind is at their backs, which, which almost goes to show that this is exactly where God wants them. They sail straight across. They don't have to deviate. They don't have to port. It's just open road for God to use them where he wants to use them. This was God making a way. This was a very big divine moment in their lives. And yet, it's something that we just kind of read over, isn't it? I want to highlight this because so often in our lives do we go through situations where we sail straight across and we don't even think about what God's actually doing in that moment, right? So often do we neglect to realize the divine moments that God is doing something in the moment and we just blow past it like nothing ever happened or it was supposed to be that way. And yet that's not the case. We need to have our eyes wide open to the divine moments in our lives, don't we? 
We need to have our eyes wide open for what God wants to do with us and and for what he is doing in those little moments like sailing. It could have been a long journey, but it wasn't. They went right across and they ended up in Philippi. And so they made it straight across. And this is very important that they're heading to Philippi. And so because the gospel is now reaching into Europe. It's a very important step in the spread of the gospel. And so if you remember Acts 1.8, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so far, it's been Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but it hasn't reached all the way over into Europe yet. And yet here we are to see where Paul wanted to go to Asia. They, God's like, no, we're going to head up to Europe, which is a ro- part of the Roman Empire, a Roman colony. I like what one commentator said. He says, Rome did not know it, but the flag of Christianity was unfurled in the empire that day. And the reigning Christ was about to win many to himself. Europe had no clue what was about to hit them. They had no clue what God was about to do here. And so Paul and Silas end up, and Timothy end up in Philippi. Now, Philippi, you have to know, that has a special place in Paul's heart. In fact, there's even a letter written to the church in Philippi. It's called Philippians. It's also in the New Testament. And I love what Paul says at the beginning of Philippians. Philippians 1, 3 through 5. Paul says, Every time I think you with joy, for you have been my pot. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. I love, the be- I love this passage. It tells us so many things, but two things I want to point out for you is, first of all, when Paul is writing this letter, he's thinking of specific people. Every time I think of you, he's not writing to a place, he's not writing to a region, he's not even writing to like leaders of the church, he is writing to very specific people with whom he has relationships with, people whom he has ministered to, cried with, spoken to, argued with, whatever the case may be. He is writing to actual people with people in mind. This makes a lot of sense doesn't it? Because a lot of the the greatest moments in our lives involve people, doesn't it? Some of the greatest moments in our lives involve the people whom we love and we care for. Not a place, not a destination. It's the people that matter. He's writing to very specific people, and he's also referring to a very specific time. He says, uh, You have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. So Paul brings our minds back to, well, when did they first hear it? When did they first hear the gospel? Well, it's Acts 16. That's what we read in Acts 16. We are reading in Acts 16 about certain people in the town of Philippi who hear the gospel and who also continue to spread the good news of the gospel since they heard it, since the time Paul walks into Philippi for the first time to share the good news with them. In Acts 16, we're going to meet three very specific people. There's more than three, but Luke decides to highlight three very specific people who make up the Philippi church, okay? And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the time. We're going to look at how God uses these very specific people, very unlikely people, in order to further the gospel, spread the good news of Christ in their region, in their context. And so the first person we meet is Lydia. 
Let's, let's look at this. On the Sabbath, we went a little way out, outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. And she listened to us. The Lord opened her heart. And as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her whole household were baptized, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. It was Paul's custom to, on his missionary journeys, to go right to the synagogue when he arrived at a town on the Sabbath. But here in Philippi, remember, this the gospel is going into Europe for the first time. There's apparently no synagogue. And the reason being is that in order to start a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue, you have to have 10 male heads of households to have a quorum in order to start the synagogue. And so apparently, there's not 10 male heads of households in this town to then start a synagogue. So then, they have a plan for this, though, in the Jewish realm. They're like, if there is no synagogue, then it's known that whoever is Jewish, whoever does believe, they go to the open air by a body of water next to the town. So then they pick a very popular place to go and meet, to pray, and read the law together. And so Paul arrives in Philippi. There's no synagogue. And so he knows, oh, I'm just going to go to the river, and I'm going to find these women. That's why he heads to the riverbank. And he heads to the riverbank, and he has no clue who he's going to meet there. Remember, he has this Macedonian call, this vision of a man calling him to Macedonia, and he has no idea who's going to be at this riverbank. And he shows up, and he finds a group of women, a group of women praying together. And one of those people is Lydia. We're told two things about Lydia in this passage. First, we are told that she is a merchant of expensive cloth. Thyatira, where she's from, is very famous for their dyes, okay? If you don't know this, our clothes are not this color when they are made, okay? They have to be dyed this way, if you didn't know. That's exactly what this town was famous for. They were famous for their dyes. And so what this tells us, most likely Lydia was a Macedonian rep for a Thyatiran purple dye distributor, okay? So much like Gordon Food Service. And so we see that she is from Thyatira, but she lives in Macedonia, and she is exporting and importing these dyes through into Europe, which means that she's this hub of merchandise that's going through. So she is a very well-to-do individual, very wealthy person, because purple itself is also very wealthy. And also, she's just, she's on it. She's a businesswoman, she's a fashion mogul, she's wealthy, and yet here she is on the Sabbath, worshiping and praying to God. Second, we're told she's a worshiper of God. This is very important to understand. She's not Jewish, she's most likely a Gentile who saw the truth of Judaism and wanted it. She believed and behaved like a Jew without actually becoming one. This means that she knew the scriptures. This means she loved God, but she had yet to hear of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us. So Paul takes the opportunity to share the gospel with them, and we already saw what happens. As she listened, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. In this moment, Lydia becomes a Christ follower. 
I absolutely love the, con- the conversion of Lydia because it highlights what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. It's a very short verse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I planted, but God watered, God gave, I'm sorry, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul was called to go to Macedonia to share the gospel, and he was faithful. Paul didn't know who he would find there, but he found a bunch of women, and he faithfully shared the gospel with them. Paul was faithful in all of this, but it was God who opened Lydia's heart. Do you see that? It's imperative that we understand this. It's imperative we understand that it's God who gives the growth, it's God who opens hearts, because often, what do we want to do? We think we are the ones who is going to open someone's heart in our lives. For some of you parents, it's, it's your children. You pray and you think, oh, it's my responsibility that they come to know Jesus as their Savior. It's not. It's God's responsibility. He's the one who opens hearts. He's the one who gives the growth. It's your responsibility to be, be faithful and share it, but he's going to do the work. Many of you have friends who, who you think, oh, it's all on me, or else they're never going to make this, this, this decision. No, it's not. It's not all on you. It's on you to share the good news, but it's on God who's going to open hearts and give the growth. Do you see what happens when we often, up from here, I say, hey, go out there and share the good news of Jesus. We want you to do that, but often we make it all about ourselves, don't we? Like, I'm not comfortable with that, or that seems a little too hard, or some of you are all gung-ho and you don't care about the actual people. You see, we can't make it all about ourselves when we go out and share the gospel. We can't make it all about ourselves when we're being faithful to God. We have to be faithful to the mission, and God's going to give the growth, and God's going to open the hearts. That's what we're reminded of with Lydia's conversion. Paul was just faithful. He ended up at the river. He shared the good news. God opened her heart. So who in your life do you just need to be faithful to and let God do the work? It's a great question to ask. Lydia and her whole household came to know Christ, and they were the first people who were a part of the Philippian church. Very unlikely family to be a part of this church. But the story actually gets crazier. So let's continue. Acts 16, 16 through 18. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated. I actually like what the ESV says. It says, Paul got greatly annoyed. (laughs) It was like super annoyed with this girl following her. That he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Instantly, it left her. And so, Paul, again, being faithful, going back to the place of prayer. So just mind you, he's just continuing his mission, continuing to share the gospel. But this slave girl, all of a sudden, who has this spirit within her, starts following them. She's enslaved by two things here. First, she's enslaved by demonic forces. And then second, she's enslaved by someone who owns her to make money off of her, to exploit her. Because apparently, she can tell the future through these demonic forces. 
so that her owners don't love her, don't care about her. All they care about is their own gain. And so this little girl starts following them around, shouting the truth. Isn't it true? Like, mind you, it's annoying when someone says the wrong things about you, but it's kind of cool when they say the right things about you. And so this little girl's saying the right things. They're servants of the Most High God. That's exactly what they are. Also, they have come to tell you how to be saved. That's exactly what they're doing. And so Paul and Silas have a choice here. They can either take the free publicity and let her keep shouting the truth out, or they could offer her freedom through Jesus Christ. See that choice there? They could either take the publicity and get the crowds because the girl who is famous for telling the fortune is shouting the truth, so people are going to flock to them. Or they can offer freedom through Jesus Christ. And so apparently, they kind of let it ride for a couple days. But then he gets annoyed and he realizes, you know what? We're going to go ahead and offer her freedom. And so through the power of Christ, not through Paul, this wasn't anything Paul did. I command you in who? In the name of Jesus Christ. There's your power. That's where the power comes from. In the name of Jesus, come out of her. And guess what? It left her. It left her. It's very reminiscent of a lot of stories when Jesus commands demons to come out of people in the Gospels as well because it's through the power of Christ that that happens. And so this slave girl, it was telling the truth about Paul and Silas, but Paul is faithful, and through the power of Christ, she is now free from her demonic forces and most likely from her slave owners. And we can safely assume that she most likely started to attend this church. So you have this fashion mogul, this, this, this Thyatiran rep of a purple dye, and then you have this slave girl whom we don't even know her name, and they are the beginning of the Philippian church. All right, But as you can tell, I don't think the owners of the slave girl were very happy because look what happens. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. All right? They put all their money into that. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. They dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities, and before you know it, there's a massive revolt against them. God's doing work, but the enemy comes in. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. I just want you to just let that sink in for a moment. Public place, stripped bare, beaten with rods to the point where they most likely couldn't feel their back or had any skin left. They were severely beaten. And then to top it off, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. That's all he was ordered to. So he went a little further and put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Clamped their feet in the stocks. Where would your mind and heart be in that moment if you were Paul and Silas? Many of us would want to give up in that moment, resolve to just forget our mission and hope we get out and so we can flee and head back to the comforts of our own home. Not Paul and Silas. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening so even in the midst of being naked, beaten, in stocks, they're still just sharing the gospel with other prisoners who are there, 
prison guards who are probably listening. And then suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. Here we see the same exact thing, Paul and Silas being faithful to the mission that God has for them. You see, they were praying and singing hymns to God because they knew that there was freedom in Christ no matter the outcome. You see, they knew that God could absolutely send an earthquake to to make all the doors open and all the, the chains fall off. They knew that. You want to know why? Because in Acts 12, it happened to Peter. It already happened to someone. And so Peter probably shared the story with them. They're probably in the interview. They're like, I don't know. It could happen again. Let's pray and sing hymns. But they also knew the flip side. They also knew that this could be the end. Because guess what? Also in Acts 12, James was murdered. Also in Acts 7, Stephen was murdered. So two of them didn't make it. Peter did make it. So they knew no matter what, to live as Christ and to die as gain. No matter what, they knew that they were going to receive freedom through Christ, either physically or eternally, one way or another. We can all learn from this because their heart realities exceeded their miserable circumstance. Let me just say that one more time. Their heart realities exceeded their miserable circumstance. Can we all just think about our lives for a second? Every single one of us go through miserable circumstances. Some are insanely tragic. Some are a little here. But they're all miserable in our context where we're at. And the natural thing for us to do is to allow our miserable circumstances to severely outweigh our heart reality in life. And because of that, we then will go on a downward spiral to who knows where. But if we have faith in Christ, and if we have hope in Jesus as our cornerstone, as our Savior, guess what? Our heart reality should always outweigh our miserable circumstance. That even though this is terrible and miserable, I'm not taking that away. It's hard to go through those things. I get it. But our heart realities can always help us see ourselves through those circumstances. And so if you have faith in Christ, which is your reality, you have Christ as the cornerstone, you have Christ as your foundation, that's your reality, that should always get you through your miserable circumstances. And in those circumstances, we have a choice. We can either give in to them and just see ourselves down, or we can lean into Christ and our reality. And it can see us through. That's exactly what they did. Their heart realities outweighed their miserable circumstance. They knew God could do a miracle. And he did. He sent an earthquake. God sent an earthquake. Everything opened up. They could have run. Everybody could have run. The other, it says other prisoners, which means that there's other people not even connected to Paul and Silas. And I assume when everything opened, Paul was probably like, no, sit down, guys. 
and they listened, which is weird, because if you're prisoners, you probably want to run. And so they sit down, everybody stays. The jailer comes in, and he's about to take his own life, and people are like, why would he do that? Well, the execution process in that time, if you lose a jailer, is not fun, okay? So, so most likely, he wanted to take his own life, so he didn't have to, have to experience losing all those prisoners. And so before he could kill himself, though, guess what he receives in that moment? Love and grace. Isn't that pretty amazing? Paul and the other prisoners could have left. Thinking about themselves, they could have left. And yet, they show this jailer love and grace. We don't know all the circumstances of why, but they stayed. They stayed. They say, don't kill yourself. We are still here. And look how the jailer responds. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer was not focused on his job. He didn't say, he wasn't focused on his reputation. He didn't say, hey, thanks, guys, you really saved my butt. He was focused on his eternity. And he asked the same question that many of us have asked in our lives to someone else who has, no, who has a relationship with Jesus. He brought them out and he asked them, what must I do to be saved? Paul planted. And God was giving the growth. And Paul responds, very simply, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. This is the question that has resounded over uh, centuries, and it's also the answer that has been brought forth throughout the centuries as well. What must I do to be saved? Notice how Paul doesn't say, hey man, we need more heads of households to start a synagogue. Like, we really could use you there. He doesn't say, come to the prayer meetings at the river. He doesn't say, you have to give all this money. He doesn't mention any of that. He goes simply to the truth of the gospel, and he says, simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That answer is the answer that changes and transforms lives for eternity. And that's the answer that many of us have heard in our lives when we reach out and say, what must we do to be saved? It's very simple. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's it. Everything else will follow, but that is the beginning of a relationship with Jesus. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed, washed them with their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized, which is amazing to think about. The whole household came to know Christ that day. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Notice how usually salvation happens and then it leads to service right away. Salvation happened, then they served Paul and Silas. And so we see right here the third 
member of the Philippian church of, of the way in Philippi. And so you have Lydia, you have the slave girl, and then you have the jailer. I would probably throw in some of the ex-prisoners in there as well. I would assume some of them came to know Christ also. But this is the beginning of a movement that has continued on into Europe, which if you don't know your history, then from Europe it continues on where? Into the Americas. So like you and I sitting here today are directly connected to Acts chapter 16 with God working and moving into Europe. And using the least likely people, the down and outs, the ones who the cowboys would never want. And yet God wants to continue and further his mission in this world to give eternal life to those who don't deserve it. You and me today. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul also says this. And we're going to end with this. So remember, Philippians 1, he says, I'm thankful for you. I pray for you. I think about the time it began. And that was great. That was wild. Do you remember the earthquake? <laughs> and then he says, I am certain that God who began the good work in you. Remember, God gives the growth. God does the work. God opens hearts. And he says, God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This promise from God to the Philippian church is the same promise for you today. God is the one who did the work in your heart to open your heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he's not going to leave you out to dry. He's not going to leave you alone. He's not going to leave you by himself. He is going to continue his work within you until it is finished or he returns. And so may we lean into this promise today, understanding that he does the work and we just simply get to be faithful. We get to go out there and plant and water, but God's going to continue to move. Let's pray.